Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Judges. It's right after Joshua. It's our current reading, for those of you that are following along. How many of you, it's your, it's your favorite thing to fail? You can hardly look forward to the next time you fail, right? Is it a fair statement uh, to say, and, and to, if I can even just make this assumption, that nobody, nobody really wants to fail, do they? None of us want to fail. We, we attempt something, we, we take a step of faith. Uh, it's not our goal to do so. And to fail, we want to succeed. We want to have a, um, a fair measure of success. So though no one wants to fail, very often we fail at a lot of things, don't we? And sometimes uh, reasons that we don't understand or things that we've done or haven't done, we missed out on, we weren't prepared uh, well enough. Failure does come. That's part of our Life situation. The question is, we don't want to fail because we've compromised. The worst kind of reason to fail is because of compromise. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning out of the book of Judges. This is really the the message of the book of Judges. It's failure through compromise. And truth be known, that's something that all of us have to address regularly in our life. Uh, best intentions to live our Christian life. Uh, compromise is always there right in front of us, isn't it? It's always there. The, the temptation to compromise, the temptation to cut corners, the temptation in, in some arena of life. And, and largely it starts in our thought life. We don't compromise out here unless we've first done it up here. We talked the last couple of weeks about the, the battle is in the mind. That's where, uh, that's where the battle is fought. That's where our spiritual adversary will attack us, is our thought life. If they can get us to think erroneously, uh, get us to think um, worldly, uh, we are going to, very often, unless we bring those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Did we talk about that? Somebody remember that? Bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And, and that, that's a constant effort, isn't it? That's a constant battle. If, if we're not accustomed to that, I forget who I was talking to this week, who was telling me that they've been practicing this and, 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 and what a revolutionary experience has been for their life uh, because they had, quite frankly, never been aware and so diligent. In fact, that verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 10.5, has become a life verse for this particular individual I was speaking to. And uh, the comment was made, uh, I never realized how, how I was not doing that. Terrific revelation. So the point I, I just want to make is compromise starts up here in our thought life. We compromise with our attitudes. We, we think thoughts that we ought not to think. Um, we don't think thoughts that we ought to think. Compromise works both ways. We will compromise in our language. Uh, one of the greatest areas in which Christians find themselves compromising 
almost without even thinking, is gossip. Isn't that true? And we talk about people. We talk about people. And, 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 and we forget that talking about people, even in the, the most seemingly harmless and innocent way, really is still gossip. It's tail-bearing. Uh, people talk about their spouses in, in not the most flattering ways, uh, just to cast a little bit of a, a shadow on their character. It's very easy to do. But again, again, it comes in, falls into the general arena, I believe, of compromise. We compromise on our behavior. Things that we ought not to be doing, things that we ought to be doing that we're not doing. Uh, we, we often do what we're tempted to do, when in fact we ought not to do what we're tempted to do, but do what we're tempted not to do. Does that make sense? So compromise is a very, very serious issue. And every time we give in, every time we make a compromise, as seemingly harmless as it may be to us, it's not that big a deal. It's just what's a big deal. What seems like not a very big deal to you and I may, in fact, be a very real big deal to God. In fact, it's part of, I think, part of our human rationale uh, to rationalize these things. Ah, it's not a big deal. God, that, that doesn't bother God. When in fact, just a little tiny thing, a little, just a little bit of yeast will leaven the whole loaf. And so it's, I think it's imperative that we talk about this issue and, and think about it and reflect on it. But every time we do compromise, it doesn't end there. It, we, we give the devil a, a foothold in our life. And that's exactly what he wants. Just, just give, give him an inch. Just give him a little room. And he's going to come in, and he is going to take advantage. And uh, like an insensitive dentist, he's going to keep drilling and drilling and drilling and drilling until that, that hole uh, in that tooth reaches the nerve. And uh, you're in terrific pain. And you know when the devil drills, he doesn't use anesthetic. Right? Well, the book of Judges is, is just very that. It, 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 the, the, the name of the book is taken... Uh, from its contents, and the contents are devoted uh, to this period of Israel's judges. And this period of Israel's history covers roughly 300 years, 350 years, uh, from um, the conquest of Jericho when they crossed over the Jordan River and uh, Joshua led them into the land. They con- conquered jo- uh, Jericho. It covers from that period to uh, the installation of Saul as the first king of Israel. And uh, this period uh, was meant to be a theocracy. In other words, uh, God has grown his people up, Israel up, and he's brought them out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness for 40 years to get Egypt out of them. You understand that concept? And, uh, and so now they're poised. They, they come into the promised land, led by Moses all those years. Joshua takes over the leadership. They conquer the land pretty substantially. And now Joshua is going to pass off the scene. And it's God's intention for his people to look to him as their ruler, as their king. Not just their God, but as their ruler. It is to be a theocracy. Uh, But as you understand, and there's no doubt you've read through the book of uh, Judges, uh, many many of us have a number of times, uh, you see this this ebb and flow of, of... rebellion and wickedness and such uh, in the nation, when in fact they don't look to God. God is not their ruler. 
and uh, they get to the end of this period, uh, and then they move into the period which will become known as the monarchy, and they, they whine and cry, and they say, we want a king like everybody else has. Not God's intention for them to have a king. And so uh, Saul is anointed as the first king, and then he fails, and David will be after him, and Solomon, and so forth, and so forth, that whole period. The judges were unique. They weren't kings, and they weren't, they weren't rulers throughout the entire period. The judges were, were just occasional deliverers, and they delivered not the whole nation, but they delivered uh, pockets of the nation. Uh, maybe where the Philistines would be attacking, or the Midianites, or the, the segment of Israel, and the, and the Israelites were under um, uh, domination and oppression. Then periodically, God would raise up a deliverer. And uh, this deliverer would just rescue that portion of the nation that was under oppression, rescue them from oppression, and begin to administer justice in that environment. And then he would pass off the scene, and they would go through another season, and uh, they'd fall into wickedness again, and then God would raise up another deliverer, another judge. The period of Israel's history during this time, this 350 years, is marked by just simply great moral deterioration. Uh, They have fallen from from a great height, and it is tragic, absolutely tragic. And therein is the lesson for us, I believe, is that we, though tempted to compromise at various points, Understanding that a compromise starts in our thought life. This is why we guard our thought life. This is why we bring every thought captive to Christ. Because of the implications and where this can take us. It's not enough that we sit complacently and say, I'm a Christian, I'm born again, I'm in, I got my ticket punched for heaven, uh, whatever. It's not enough for us to do that. We have to continually be on our guard, as uh, Peter says, uh, to the saints in First Peter. Be on your guard. Be sober. Be alert. He says, your enemy, the devil, is rowing about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, chew up, eat. I mean, that's a pretty graphic picture. Now, if you go into uh, the uh, second chapter of the book of Judges, and we're just going to bounce around here a little bit. Verse 7 is very, very insightful. We're told that the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. So during Joshua's lifetime, and even when he passed off the scene, uh, during the lifetime of the elders who were contemporaneous with him, all these who had seen the great miraculous things God had done... Israel, uh, they were courageous, they were faithful, they were free in large measure uh, from the weaknesses and the obstinacy and the sin uh, and the idolatry shown by their forefathers. If you look at chapter 2, or, I'm sorry, J- uh, Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. Just turn back a couple pages. Joshua is giving this charge, and we're going to look at it in more detail. He's giving this charge. He's going to, he knows he's going to die. He's going to pass off the scene. He understands and is anticipating. He's a student of human nature. He understands people. He understands our tendencies, and more particularly the tendencies of the Israelites. 
And so he's going to give them this, this last charge, if you will, to stay the course. And he talks to them about their forefathers. In verse 15, he says, um, If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river. So he, 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 he speaks to them about the faithlessness of their forefathers who got immersed in idolatry, who compromised. So here's this present generation. He's saying, don't go back and do like your forefathers did. Don't fall into this. Be faithful. Now, as they'd come into the land, and Joshua has uh, uh, parceled out the land to all the tribes, uh, as you might expect, you know, it's one thing to work hard, to work hard, work hard, save your money, save your money, and you're going to buy this new house and get it furnished and get it together, get the lawn in and all that stuff, right? And then once you're in, you want to sit down and relax. Is there a tendency toward that? All the boxes are unpacked. The bane of the unpacked boxes. All the boxes are unpacked. You're settled in. Time to rest. Time to enjoy. I think all of us can relate to that to some degree. Well, it's no doubt the same thing with the Israelites. Here's the, here they are. They, they, they've come into the land. Each tribe has gotten their parcel. They're settling down. They're cultivating the ground. They're raising their crops. They're raising their flocks. And their fervor for warfare cools. This is critical. Their fervor for warfare cools. They, instead of continuing to battle, because not all of the the, the Canaanite influence is driven out of the land yet. A substantial amount of the uncleanness is still is gone, but there still is a remnant of the Canaanite influence in the land. God said you're to drive it all out. Get it all out. Now what do you suppose, if, if you look at Israel as a metaphor for, the, for us today, and God says drive out all the Canaanites, destroy them, destroy them, every single one, what, what might that address in our life? Sin. Sin. Are, are we to coexist with any amount of sin in our life? Just a little bit. A comfortable amount. I got most of it out of my life. And, and, and I got most of it out and I can kind of settle down and be comfortable and coexist with it? No. Do you see the danger there? This is the very real danger for the Israelites. And so they've fallen into really a state of, of, of indifference, if you will. Their fervor for warfare has cooled off. Their appetite for ease has increased, as is very common. And here in, 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 in the last two chapters of Joshua, in fact, turn there, Joshua 23, Joshua challenges them to rise up out of their complacency, or at least to guard against it, and to keep engaged in the battle against sin. Let's just read chapter 23. After a long time had passed, and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, 
Joshua, by then old and well advanced in years, summoned all the Israelites, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, said to them, I am old and well advanced in years. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. And now he, and now he's speaking for the Lord. He says, remember how I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered between the Jordan and the Great Sea in the West. So God's saying, look, I drove these people out. I, but at the same time, well, God's at work. We still enjoy the battle, don't we? You can't just sit back and say, okay, God, drive out, drive out sin. Drive out the enemy. He drives out the enemy. He does away with stuff, but we have to participate. There's somehow this divine human partnership, if you will. Okay? And so he talks to them about that. Verse 5, The Lord your God himself will drive them out of your way. He will push them out before you, and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God had promised you. So this marvelous, marvelous picture is set before them of what God has done and what God will continue to do. We have a very, very rich, rich confidence. So he says, be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Now, because part of the nations remain among them, it's not God's intention for those nations to remain among them. But now he's saying, beware. There's going to be a source of temptation to you. Don't turn to the right or the left. Your refuge is in my word. Your refuge is in your complete faith in me. Nothing else. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. As the writer to the Hebrews says to us, he says, keep your, your, your eyes focused, keep your gaze focused on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of your faith. He says, do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not inv- uh, invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. Now that phrase, until now, speaks volumes about what his concern is for them after he passes. What does the future hold? The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. In other words, there's no reason for you to be afraid and no reason for you to continue to do this work and to engage the battle because God has done incredible things. He's going to continue to do Don't settle down until all the work is done. He says, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand. I mean, there's tremendous odds, but one of you will route a thousand. Why? Is it because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs, thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. In other words, he's going to die. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. 
But just as every good promise of the Lord your God has come true, so the Lord will bring on you all the evil he has threatened until he has destroyed you from this good land and has given, that he has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he has commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. Now, is that a substantial warning? Yeah, I mean, you can't get much clearer than that. He keeps calling them back to remember what God has done, what God has done, what God has done, and what God will continue to do. Remain steadfast. Don't compromise. But if you do, here's the bad news. Here's what's going to happen. Just as surely as God's word is, is, is for you, God's word will be against you. Now look at verse chapter 24. Now in chapter 24... He's going to, again, in a, in a, in a, in a uh, kind of a capsulized for, uh, format, he's going to rehearse their entire history from the calling of Abraham up to the present. He wants to remind them of their heritage. And again, uh, occasion after occasion after occasion, uh, where God has demonstrated uh, his faithfulness. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem, he summoned the elders, the leaders, the judges, the officials of Israel. They presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. And he begins this summation of, of all that God had done for them, their entire history, their heritage. It's designed to engender in them or to remind in them, uh, be, be, be faithful, be loyal. Be loyal. Now jump over to verse 14. He says, now, now, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So here's Joshua. Joshua's taking a stand. And he's challenging the rest of the nation to take a stand with him. And then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Now it's a logical response, given what he has just rehearsed. I mean, it's like you're in church. And the pastor says, Shall we obey the Lord? And the congregation say, yeah, of course, we obey the Lord, right? You're in church. What else are you going to say? No. <laughs> Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us out and our forefathers out from Egypt and from the land of slavery and performed these great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We, too, will serve the Lord because he is our God. And you can see Joshua jumping up down. Yeah, all right, yeah, go. That's not what he does. Look what he says. Verse 19. Then he said to the people, no, you won't. You won't serve him. You're not able. He just, in their face, in modern parlance, he's laying the smack down. <laughs> he 
He says, no, you're not going to serve him. You're You're not able to. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you'll forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. It's like his comments are designed to extract from them this commitment that he's not confident that they're actually going to fulfill. Are you sure you're going to serve? Yes. It's like Jesus saying to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. It's on our head. We'll do it. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. See, apparently they still had these foreign idols and foreign gods among them. He says, choose this day. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. So the stage is set. What are they going to do? Joshua is going to die. 110 years old, he passes off the scene. Look at chapter 2 of Judges, verse 10. After that, after that generation, that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Oh, that, that does not bode well. If you go back to the book of Deuteronomy and the law, God had commanded his people, he commanded the fathers to teach the children. To teach them God's law, teach them God's word. And they're going out, they're coming in, they're standing up, they're rising down. Their they're, they're conversations, they're, to keep, they're buying God's law on their heads, on their hands, etc., etc. Apparently that had not happened. Something got lost here. That generation that had said, yes, we will serve the Lord, implicit in that is teach our kids. And the fathers are commanded to do it. We have the same dilemma today. A whole generation of kids is growing up. They don't know the Lord. They, they just don't know the Lord. Because many times the fathers are not involved in their life. It's just, it's, 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 it's endemic in our culture. Men don't know how to be men. They don't know how to be leaders in their homes. And when Papa doesn't pop, Mama does. She'll always step in the gap. I had a conversation with a woman last night. Amazing. She says, she says I've discovered the secret of cotton balls and duct tape. 
And I said, really, what's the secret of cotton balls and duct tape? She says, when I'm tempted, tell my husband what to do. I stick cotton balls in my mouth, and I put duct tape over my mouth. And she says, you know what? It is amazing what God does. And this is a serious woman. I, 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 just, I, I just was awe. And she says, you know what? I discovered you can get duct tape in lots of different colors to match all your different outfits. <laughs> amazing. You see, living among the Canaanites, the Israelites began to compromise. They began to compromise their relationship with God. They began to intermarry with the Canaanites. And they became contaminated with the Canaanite abominable practices. They had left Canaanites in the land. They didn't drive them all out. They didn't destroy all the Canaanites. Now to you and I, this sounds horrible. You know, destroy these people. Ethnic cleansing and all those kinds of languages and terminologies. But the reality is when you understand how vile and abominable and despicable the Canaanites had become. This is why God left him in the land for 400 years while he was raising up Israel. The words are, until the iniquity of the Amorite is full. God's patience for 400 years with them. But they got worse and worse and worse and worse. And their, their practices were absolutely, absolutely abominable in the sight of the Lord. And so God says they're, they're, they're good for nothing except to be destroyed. I mean, the concept of hell to us is horrendous. When you think about it, or try to get your mind around the concept of hell, you can't, you can't reconcile hell with, with a loving, gracious God. This is where people say, how could a good God do that? We don't understand what sin is like in His sight. It's just, you know, we cannot allow these things to coexist. So the Canaanites that were left in the land that didn't get driven out, didn't get destroyed, they began to grow in strength. They began to reassemble their ranks. It's kind of like, you know, you can't get rid of Al-Qaeda, you can't get rid of the Taliban in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and so now they're, they're regrouping and they're growing in strength again, and now the resistance is getting stronger. The very same reality that, that, that the Israelites would face. And not only that, all the surrounding nations and tribes, the Syrians, the Midianites, the Philistines, uh, the Moabites, all these people that surrounded the land would begin to take advantage of Israel because they had become degenerate. They had become weakened morally. And now they were subject to attack. And you read the accounts again and again and again in the book of Judges, and you see these raiding parties come in and absolutely dominate them and oppress them which God said he would do. The ease, the idolatry, and the licentiousness that the Israelites uh, engaged in made them weak, soft, and unable to defend themselves. They were just absolutely unable to defend themselves. And, and sometimes in our own life, in our own Christian experience, there are people in our, in our midst who, professing Christians, who are, are not diligent. They're, they're not practicing spiritual discipline. Spiritual discipline. They're not exercising their spiritual muscles. They're not praying regularly. They're not in the Word regularly. 
They're not in fellowship regularly. They're not uh, experiencing quiet time regularly and on and on. They're not giving re- all these spiritual disciplines that are essential for us. Because they're not exercising, they, they grow weak and are much more susceptible to compromise and much more susceptible for the enemy to come in and, and, and just literally ravage their life. Just as Peter tells us. This is very real stuff. It's not just theoretical. And the judges that God raised up were to be, among other things, living object lessons by which God sought to preserve in Israel the understanding that God and God alone was to be the only one and the only way that they would ever have victory and ever have well-being. It's devotion to Him. That's what Joshua told them. They said, obey Him, obey Him. Obey him, obey him, do what he says, do what he says, do it his way, do it his way. Acknowledge him in all your ways. Don't lean on your own understanding. And so the, the judges, each one throughout that 350-year period, were to be living object lessons of this. God calls the people back. He exhibits mercy to them. But the people only responded... And as you read the accounts, you see they only responded so far as served their own selfish ends at the moment. The saving of their necks from bondage and the grabbing of some fleshly advantage. Oh, I'm safe. I'm safe. We have a, a, a very real parallel, you know, the, the foxhole prayer. Help, God! Help, get me out of this one, save me! And I promise! Right. And very often, though, God in His mercy does reach down and save us, doesn't He? The Israelites did not love God. They didn't love Him one, one bit more for His patience and His mercy. Nor did they even just do the minimum of serving Him out of duty. Just duty, notwithstanding love. Everything, everything, every time they, He rescued them, uh, they responded uh, just with absolute, absolute rebellion. God was simply a convenient resort in time of difficulty. When things became tolerably comfortable for them, barefaced betrayal, just barefaced betrayal, uh, was the order of the day. How did it all begin? How, where, how did they get to that place? Go back to chapter 1 of Judges with me. In chapter 1, We're given an overview of the nine and a half tribes which settled in the land of Canaan. And the fact that they did not destroy or drive out all the Canaanites as God had commanded. They allowed them to remain in the land. There were the other two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and uh, the half-tribe of Manasseh, which also already sadly compromised by staying on the eastern side of the Jordan rather than coming over with the rest of the tribes and possessing the whole land. They settled, no, we'll stay on this side. We'll come over and fight with you guys. We're going to come back over and settle here. They already compromised, those first two and a half tribes. But now the other nine and a half you see recorded in chapter 1, eight incomplete conquests, starting with Reuben, or starting with uh, Judah. The people go up to the Lord, and they, they say, who will lead us? And God says, Judah. 
What a, what a prophecy. Judah will lead us. Pointing to, ultimately, the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? So Judah will lead. So Judah turns to Simeon, their neighbors, and they say, you go with us, fight our enemies, and we get all our enemies under control, then we'll go with you and we'll fight against your enemies, and we'll clear your land out. So for the first half of chapter 1, you see Judah, victory after victory after victory after victory, driving out these people, driving out these people. To come to verse 19. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country. But! Now look at this. But they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had what? Iron chariots. Oh, it is so hard. They have iron chariots. I just can't get this last part. See, getting the bulk of stuff is, we can fight that. But it's always the last remnant of sin that holds on. Holds on. And that's the hardest part to get out of our life. Iron chariots. You don't understand how hard it is, Pastor. Give me a break. Come on. Look, I did so good up to this point. There's iron chariots. God is greater than your iron chariots. And those two can be driven out of the land. And so you see, and, 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 and through the next the rest of the chapter, you see the same thing. In verse 21, Benjamin. Benjamin is still coexisting with Canaanites. In verse 27, Manasseh. Verse 29, Ephraim. Verse 30, Zebulun. Verse 31, Asher. Verse 33, Naphtali. Verse 34, Dan. They all allow a remnant of the Canaanites to exist right right there in their land. They, They intermingle with them. Incomplete mastery. Note this, please. Incomplete mastery of an evil at the outset. Incomplete mastery of an evil at the outset, at the very beginning, always means constant trouble with it afterwards and often defeat by it in the end. Unless I'm brutal, unless I, unless I deal with this stuff right now and get it out of there, deal with it, It's going to trouble me and trouble me and trouble me and trouble me. And it may very well, in the end, be a source of defeat for me in my life. It's a simple lesson. And and you don't even have to read the book of Judges to relate to that. Everyone everyone of us understand that, that, that reality. But how often do we ignore it? How often do we think, you know, it's it's not that bad. It's not that important. I got the bulk of the stuff out of there. I'm pretty good. I'm 80%. You know, very often we settle for the 80-20 rule, don't we? You see, this is the way it was for Israel. And tragically, this is the way it's been with countless others down through the millennia. Beloved, we can take no half measures against sin. Let me say that again. We can take no half measures against sin. The scriptures say that, speaking of Saul, Saul served the Lord with 
half a heart. David served him with his whole heart. We can take no half measures against sin. Paul writes this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. He commands us, indeed, put to death, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Be brutal. Put it to death. Allow, allow it no place in your life. And he identifies some general categories. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. I try, I try, but you don't understand. Uh, there's iron chariots. They're practically impossible to dislodge. I've, got, I've attacked them and attacked them. It's still there. Pastor, what should I do? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Whoa. Did Jesus shed his blood resisting sin? Uh, all the way to that point. Whatever it takes. No quarter. No quarter. I'm not going to allow this any quarter in my life. You've got to fight it. Fight it even to the point of shedding your blood. The fight against evil, the fight against sin, beloved, is not a walk in the park. It's not a ride on a pink duck. You have not... In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's serious. He said, just you fight and fight and fight. This runs contrary to our fleshly human nature, which just kind of wants to kick back. <laughs> I'm tired. I don't like this fight anymore. I want to have an easy day. Nope. It's like when you're fasting. Have you ever noticed when you're fasting and you watch television, you see nothing but commercials for hamburgers? <laughs> you know, Jack in the Box, uh, In and Out, um, McDonald's. Uh, what, what's the other one? Um, Carl's Jr. You know. Yes, Ray. <laughs> Look at chapter 2 and chapter 3 of, uh, of uh, Judges. It's in chapter 2 and chapter 3 where we see these successive stages of failure. Having only partially mastered those Canaanites, Israel now makes covenants with them. Chapter 2, verse 2. The very thing that God commands them not to do, they're making covenants. They're making agreements. They're living in coexistence. We're saying, okay, you guys can live here, but you've got to work for us. No, God doesn't intend for that to happen. Again, chapter 2, verse 2. Notice. He says, uh, And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? They've made covenants, the very thing God told them not to do. They've allowed 
these people live in coexistence. If not a formal covenant, covenant, certainly an informal covenant. Not necessarily spoken. Just by practice. We do the same thing. In chapter 3, verse 6, they begin intermarrying with the people around them. Another thing, clearly, that God had forbidden. And then idolatry. Chapter 2, verse 13, again, chapter 3, verse 6. We're told that Israel forsakes the Lord, bows down and serves the gods of the Canaanites, the very thing that God commanded them not to do. Note these stages. Incomplete mastery. Incomplete mastery leads to coexistence. Once they're, they're coexisting, they're comfortable there, that opens the door for intermarriage. Now that intermarrying has become a common thing amongst the nation, now idolatry enters in. They're participating with these Canaanites in their worship practices. But it doesn't stop there. It goes from idolatry to complete apostasy, where they deny God, they don't know Him, it's not worth remembering Him. Romans chapter 1. Although they thought it not worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with all kinds of depravity, all kinds of wickedness, all kinds of evil. This, you see in the book of Romans, you see it back here in the book of Judges. And that apostasy is followed by humiliating captivity. Chapter 2, look at verses 14 and 15 with me. After verse 13, it says, Because they forsook him, the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, in his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom were no longer able, they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. He gave them over to complete captivity. Don't tempt the Lord, he says. Because he will remove his hand of grace. He will allow his hand of discipline to bring us into a place of humiliating captivity to whatever sin we've given ourselves to. Whatever attitude we've given ourselves to. Whatever we've compromised with. He'll give us, bring us into captivity to that. Humiliating captivity. The judges who were mercifully raised up to revive Israel, to deliver them, they could only stop the rot for a short period of time. Their effect was not lasting. The rot set in worse than before as soon as each judge died. Look again with me at verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. This is the tragic story of the book of Judges. Failure through compromise. I'm convinced that you and I, all of us, 
have to allow these words, failure through compromise, to sink in to our minds and our hearts. We have to. And that we be committed to driving out any easygoing toleration of the unholy in our life. Even the last remnant. It is not easy. It'll be like uh, Judah saying, but they had iron chariots. They were the most difficult to root out. No reason to just throw my hands up and say, I quit. We've got to persevere. We've got to encourage one another in this battle. We can never enjoy God's promised rest, beloved, if we tolerate partially crushed sins to continue in us. Those secret areas that we never talk about, that we don't want to address, somehow, somehow, we have to deal with them. If we allow ourselves to coexist with questionable things because they seem harmless, just because they seem harmless, and we can rationalize that, doesn't mean they are harmless. And it doesn't mean that they aren't meaningful to God. If we allow ourselves to coexist, I believe that we shall soon find ourselves wedded again to the desires of the flesh and the desires of the world. And we will fall from the heights to which God has called us. Tragic. You and I have all seen professing Christians who have allowed compromise in their life. And we've seen this process of degradation occur. And we don't see them. Where are they? What's going on with their life? Absolutely, absolutely tragic. Doesn't have to be. This is why we need each other. This is why we need the strength of the body. We need God's strength through the body. You can't, you can't live this life by yourself. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. Let me read to you. This is God's word to us today. It's the same word that it was to Israel. He says, Therefore come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these great promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. In other words, out of the fear of the Lord. Or do we fear God? Do we take Him seriously at His word? Added impetus for us to perfect holiness and to put away these things and to be, quite frankly, uh, brutal about it. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have. We thank you, God, for your great salvation. Lord, we know that we do yet still fall short. And I pray that we, we not be content, we not settle, but that we be deliberate, intentional about continual growth, spiritually, personally, Father, for your glory, strengthen you.